Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and I'm currently away with History Hit filming across Belgium, France, Germany, and the Netherlands for a brand new documentary called Traces of War, where we find some of the unexpected parts of the Second World War that you can still find today. It's exciting. I can't wait for you all to see it. And we're keeping with the Second World War theme in this episode because we have the brilliant Tessa Dunlop back on. Now, a few months ago, she was talking to us about the Bletchley Girls, but now she has a brand new book out. It's called Army Girls, and it's about the secrets and the stories of military service from the final few women who fought in the Second World War. As we commemorate the 80th anniversary of conscription of women into the military, there is no better time to be talking about this. So here is Tessa Dunlop on Army Girls. Hi Tessa, how you been? It seems like only last week that we had you on talking about Bletchley Girls. What have you been up to? That is because time was compressed during lockdown. So what we did some eight months ago, or maybe it was six months ago, seems like yesterday. I think that's my theory anyway, for why everything feels very proximate and we've lost our bearings. I'm okay. I'm actually, I'm arriving at the apex of a slightly over a year-long project, which I now realise looking back was an ambitious time span to collate 17 veteran stories. And I have been working with, well, they were all alive when I started the project. And this is the first time I've written an oral history book where I've sadly lost four of my women in the last nine months. Not of coronavirus, funnily enough, but I don't think that the restrictions made survival through a second national crisis easy for them. And it was very interesting, actually, James, paralleling and talking to these people who were under fire again as the extreme elderly, but asked to do something very different, to be isolated. That was a new form of doing your duty. And looking back on this early formative experience they had in their youth during the Second World War. Do you felt like it evoked memories of that other time, as you say, under fire or at least under threat? When you were talking to them, I assume mainly via Zoom, is this something that they really used as a comparison to the time in which they were living now? Well, two things. One is, no, don't assume there was Zoom. 
the 96-year-old upwards generation don't do Zoom. One of them was on Zoom. Ah, of course. Yeah. So you were hit with some technical and real-life issues. How on earth did you go about doing this research? Uh, between lockdowns. I went and visited them between lockdowns. So the first set of visits I did in August, September of last year, I bombed around. I bought a car. I haven't had a car for 15 years. I bought a car. And other means, the telephone. Once I'd established that first meeting, then a lot of it I did on the telephone for those who could hear. Others, too, have voice recognition email, which is a remarkable thing. And they became very good friends over email. And then, of course, as soon as the restrictions were lifted again in the spring, I went bombing around checking. They were happy with everything I'd written. One contracted coronavirus, incidentally, aged 98 and survived. And after she'd had coronavirus, we reckoned it was safe for me to visit. So I went and visited her quite a lot because she discovered that her carers really didn't want to look after her when she had coronavirus. So, yeah, it was really interesting just on a sort of social level. It was an extraordinary project and they didn't see similarities, but more disparity with what they'd been through. Yes, the aspect of duty stuck out for them and they are a duteous generation and they did what they were told. It wasn't without significant difficulty, it must be said. However, for them, especially girls who often were stuck at home or in domestic service, which was a very lonely job, to be recruited into the ATS was very social actually, and impactful and hugely liberating, bizarrely, given they were in this military straitjacket. And in many respects, this isolation during coronavirus times was the opposite. On the one, you're acting as one, being in the army. And it was fascinating, you know, still today they carry with them the need to polish your buttons, how to barrack your bed, the minutiae and their letters. They gave me access to all their incredible personal archives. You know, one woman had over 180 letters she'd written home to her parents. She was in Belgium. She was in occupied Germany. And just the minutiae of military existence really stood out for me. And for them, it was something that they've held on to. And as they explained for somebody, you know, a layperson such as myself, this was about bending the individual into a group identity. So you take a hit for the team, literally. That's what it's about, isn't it, being in a military organisation? It's thinking as one, a big group thinking as one, which is very much in a weird way the opposite of coronavirus when you're all alone. You're operating in a solitary form. And if you've no technology, you really are very isolated. That is incredible. I'm so glad you were able to get hold of these stories and to, well, talk with these women in isolation and allow them to just bring back these memories. And also, how amazing you've got their personal archives, because that is so important to find out the day-to-day, -day, the minutiae that is just forgotten over time. If you ask me what I did during coronavirus, I couldn't tell you. I tried to keep a diary. You know, I thought, oh, maybe one day this might be interesting to tell my grandkids or something. But I just didn't have the commitment for that. I think it's probably just too boring to write anything about. So the fact you have these day-by-day -day notes is remarkable. And actually, the last great letter-writing generation, there was no smartphones. And fascinating, given that you've asked for parallels, there were a few. Joan was at Talavera training camp. It was one of the main training camps on the Northampton race course where the girls went and she was there just after conscription actually although she wasn't called up she joined beforehand she'd been very keen to join but her parents wouldn't let her this was a big sticking point parents not wanting their daughters to get into uniform and leave home I'll leave you one reason to guess why and it wasn't Jerry Bullets they were worried about anyway she eventually arrives at Talavera training camp and the letters home guess what she's short of 
loo roll. It did really make me laugh that way. She goes, could you send me some more loo roll, please? There isn't enough. And also, of course, inoculations. And weirdly, the very day I was reading her letters about getting numerous inoculations, because the Second World War really, and the First World War on the Western Front, the big changes, more people have died by enemy fire than they are by disease, because we suddenly worked out about vaccines and hygiene. And that was absolutely drummed into the military personal hygiene and vaccinations and you should see their books every sort of three months they're being stabbed for some typhoid they're never even going to go abroad half these girls it didn't matter they were all given vaccines and the very day that I'm reading about these vaccinations she's sending me on a voice recognition email just off to get my first coronavirus vaccine there was something rather wonderful about this kind of you know 80 years on symbiosis really I suppose is the word is it I say you could have called the book Lou Roll and Vaccines, but you're right. We wouldn't know what period yeah. you were writing about. It could have yeah, been last week. I could week, have done. It? Yeah. <laughs> but this is Army Girls. This is a continuation on from your book on Bletchley. What makes an army girl? Is this just the ATS or are we looking more broadly? It's actually weirdly not a continuation of Bletchley, although there was a tiny overlap where there weren't very many ATS girls at Bletchley Park. It was mainly Wrens. I did have give a cameo role to my very favourite Bletchley girl, though, because she did wear an ATS uniform. And she was very interesting about, I mean, I hadn't asked her about this when I was interviewing her for the Bletchley book, when they didn't have enough accommodation at Bletchley Park because the billets, you know, expanded at such a rate in 1943 and they'd recruited a large number of military personnel, particularly girls, they started building army camps outside the park into which Betty was commandeered. She'd been living in lodgings, having a lovely time, but suddenly rules changed. Now, you're an army girl, you're in the ATS, go and live in a camp. And this colonel, Colonel Fillingham, okay, was in charge of these army camps. And he was absolutely livid because he had no clue what was going on inside the park. He wasn't privy to the information. And that meant that he was really overzealous in his application of military rules. And of course, these Bletchley girls hadn't been living under, operating under army rules. The only thing they'd been doing was putting on their rather unattractive surge uniform on a daily basis. Suddenly, they're having to jump up, do drill, march into breakfast. And Betty had terrible premenstrual tension and terrible period pains. Well, Colonel Fillingham didn't go a bomb on female biology. Once she had such bad period pain that she missed breakfast and was put on a charge. So all this came out years after the Official Secrets Act and Betty telling her story. She's finally broken her silence on menstruation in the army, which was fairly unpleasant. There was very little pain relief and awful sanitary towels, James, that chafed. How do you move on from awful sanitary towels that chafed? That silenced you, didn't it? (laughs) Can we talk a bit more about periods? We can talk as much as you like about periods. It's significant in the army. I'm sorry I want to butt in here and a feminist stick my feminist neck out because there was a great deal of concern about how many days would be lost to menstrual tension and pain. In the army, you recruit all these girls, but you need them to be match fit and prepared to work. And that was why there was such an emphasis on physical education, physical training, PT, which was dreaded. And this is in the army manual and by the first director of the ATS, that healthy girls and ones who didn't suffer from menstrual pain were those who were physically fit. And that was the army solution to keep the girls working out. And they were so embarrassed about going into the NAFI to ask for these sanitary towels, because often it was a man who was serving them. They had a code name for them. They were called silver teaspoons. Could have some silver teaspoons, please. And that was about how you got your sanitary towels. There you go. Code words within the ATS. Yes, yes. Now, you mentioned about the fact that there was this stark change in reality for women like Betty, who went from Bletchley over the fence almost into the ATS and had to spend some time there. 
did that mean that there was a, a very different type of woman, a different character that was involved in the ATS as opposed to Bletchley? Who is, what is an army girl? Well, that's a really good question. There were three military services, female military services, by 1940. And they were the WAFs, the Wrens, so the WAFs are the Women's Air Force, the Wrens, the Female Naval Service, and the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, which was the support for the army. The former two, the WAFs and the Wrens, called chic shades of blue, had more innovative reputations and were distinctly classier. And very rarely, certainly the Wrens never had to rely on conscription, which was introduced exactly 80 years ago, in a month's time, in fact. The WAFs far less often. The Wrens, it should be said, was a much smaller service. The WAFs was quite large, occasionally needed conscription, but not often. And the ATS, almost entirely dependent at some points on recruiting sufficient numbers, through conscription. There was a heft of snobbishness about the ATS. It got off to a bad start. It was seen as old fashioned. The uniform was unflattering, especially initially when it was under this old school Dame Helen Gwyn Vaughan. And they really struggled to drum up the numbers. The other problem was the number of trades that were available for girls to do. So until it came under the Army Act in April 1941, really the only thing you could be if you were in the ATS was uh, the most glamorous, a driver, or an orderly, or a cook, and a clerk. So it was seen as being sort of a dog's body to the male army. Now, girls who were signing up wanted to share in this sort of heroism and enjoy a bit of the adventure and glamour. So they had to totally rebrand, but they were always on a back foot. They did eventually rebrand as adventure through action. And that meant then they were always short of cooks, because of course, all these girls signed up. And actually in the recruitment film, The Gentle Sex, the girl says, I'm dreaming of a great big gunny one you know, and in fact, now she's going to be stuck in a kitchen. Because if you've got 1.5 million allied soldiers arriving in Britain to train for D-Day, they need fed. And of course, that is one of the ATS's jobs. It's not glamorous, but it needs done. And there is a cook in my book. In fact, she's still cooking today at 97. She said it was a great job. It's kept me in work for life. But it was not the main job that the girls wanted to do. You know, the genders were so separate. And even though girls might be dreaming of a great big gunny one, even when the rules trained, women throughout the war were non-combatants, unless they were very rarefied, working for SOE as agent operatives, bilingual in French, you know, one in a blue moon. For example, Violette Sarbo would be a classic. We know she lost her life tragically from the German Gestapo. She was eventually killed in a German concentration camp in Ravensbrück. She had a Sten gun and was apparently quite a good shot. But girls couldn't be armed. You asked about the ATS and its social makeup. It was so from the lower socioeconomic classes, of course, there were some posh girls. I have a Lady Martha Bruce in my book who eventually would become a lieutenant colonel in the Territorial Army after the war. She was sort of one of the grandees. But funnily enough, that sort of top bracket tweedy type of woman put off many of your sort of middle class ambitious girls. They didn't want to be stuck in some hierarchical organisation that made them your sort of glorified uniform version of being a servant. There was, however, this wing, this elite wing that reluctantly came under the umbrella of the ATS called the Fanny. Now, do you know about the Fanny? I do not. The Fanny is the first aid nursing yeomanry. And really, one should say the first aid nursing yeomanry. And they're still going today, actually, under Princess Anne. She's their titular head. And they are the longest serving female uniform voluntary organisation. And they reluctantly came under this ATS branch, but they kept their own uniform, their own headquarters and their own rules. And they also were the sort of 
guise or disguise, if you like, for some of these SOE agents. They would be given a fanny pension and a fanny uniform so that they could sort of explain who they were if they had to on sort of official papers or for passports, etc. But yeah, so I have a couple of fannies who did get more exciting roles. And because they were recruited within a closed social network, a bit like Bletchley, posh, read posh, or private school educated, they were allowed overseas to serve much earlier than the ATS girls were. Throughout the war, in fact, fanny were stationed overseas. Well, both of my grandmothers were in the ATS, both Phyllis and Anne. So I'm really keen to hear some of the roles in which these women served in and the actions they had during the war. And your book really does bring these to life. We hear stories from Barbara, from Grace, from Martha, from Olivia, and all of them are fascinating in their own way, but so diverse in terms of the roles that they did play. So take us through some of these stories. I don't know, where do you want to start? Well, I'm so touched you've actually read the book. My goodness, has given me goosebumps. <laughs> Extraordinary. I'm interested that both your grandmothers were in the ATS. It was a broad church. A lot of the women I met, for instance, Grace and Vera was another, were domestic servants. And joining up, signing up, changed their lives. It really did. I know we talk about the People's War and I think it's overstated. Clearly, I've just given you an example of the fannies and, you know, the rah-rah end of the ATS and the sort of snobbishness of the Wrens. There were huge class disparities and they persisted. But at the same time, the ATS by April 1941 was going to be the main recruiting tool for personnel onto our anti-aircraft gun sites. This was a massive deal and a U-turn at war office and government level. Up until 1941, women could not be in operational military areas. So if you worked in the ATS, you weren't in an operational war zone. That changed. You still couldn't fire a gun, but you could be in an operational area. And the main operational area on British soil was, of course, these anti-aircraft gun sites. They were the most dangerous. They were our front line, effectively. We're never invaded by the jackboot, were we? No, it came from overhead. And the Blitz taught us our ability on the anti-aircraft side, our ability to shoot down a radar, an airborne radar, was limited. And we needed to improve very fast both the technical side and there was a dire straits in terms of our personnel. It was found horribly wanting. Luckily, they had a very avant-garde man in charge called General Sir Frederick Tim Pyle. He was a far-seeing individual who very early on said, we need women. And in fact, he'd been running tests before the war to prove that women were fit to serve on these gun sites. He wasn't going to get it past the war office until 1941. But he had been working with a top woman, Caroline Haslett, who was a sort of top woman in terms of her research with girls and gadgets in the domestic arena. And she was invited to go and watch his men work before the war. And she said, oh, absolutely, girls could totally do this. But nipping and tucking the truth, saying, of course, so long as they don't have to fire the guns, because they were working within these very strict gender boundaries. And so they hopped over the semantic issue of girls not firing the guns. And what you have are effectively the first drone girls, because they're going to be operating this high-tech equipment that's coming out that will steer the gun onto the enemy radar. I so know you've got to get, this. You I've know been this. down to some of these sites in London where they were pretty much remote controlled anti-aircraft guns, weren't they? Yes, yes, yes. And it was girls behind the guns, literally. Wow. But the weirdest thing is so they're also operating with men in the gun pit. Right, so it's all on these gun sites. You've got your height finder. Early on in the war, there was a spotter who's literally standing with binoculars looking for the Luftwaffe overhead. 
that's going to come on leaps and bounds. You know, it's like the pressure cooker for invention, isn't it, a war? So you're going to get Mark One, Mark Two radar coming in, which will transform our capacity to read where the enemy radar is. We can read it from eight miles away, you know, so the spotter is effectively redundant by the end of the war. You have radar replacing that job, but you also need your height finder and your predictor to work out your bearing, the speed, so that you can lock your gun on and you can give the command to fire, which is again, it's you by a woman. Lady Martha Bruce, she turns down officer status and officer rank, they immediately want to promote her because of her title. She wants to be a private, she wants to operate radar, it's her big dream. She knows of Mary Churchill, who was one of the first girls onto a gun site, a poster girl effectively. Martha's hot footing on her heels and she's clearly a very bright woman, Martha, and she's at the Devizes training camp and she's desperate to get on a gun site and they won't let her because she's so hot stuff. They get her to train other girls in all the emerging technology. She eventually gets to go out and operate and where, of course, it really came into its own, a lot of this anti-aircraft equipment and the way in which it was operated was during the V1 attacks in 1944 because they travel at a constant speed. So that actually, once you've worked out their bearing and their height, you can get them. Because you think an enemy can dive off. They can see the church light. They can shoot off. They can go a different direction. They can slow down. But this first cruise missile, effectively, wasn't it, the V1? It's coming along, pup, 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 at a set speed and height. So they're easier to pick off. And actually, the success rate of the anti-aircraft came much later in the second half of the war, this Operation Diver, against the V1 bombs. So I think we can't underestimate just how successful this ability to shoot down V1s are. We always talk about the devastation that the doodlebugs caused, but we didn't, I don't think, or haven't sufficiently written up the great success. It's a bit like now, you know, if a terrorist gets through and has an appalling sort of 9-11 equivalent or London Bridge equivalent, that's what we remember. We don't know about all the many terrorist attacks that we've managed to prevent through our intelligence. And I feel it's slightly the same in the case of the V1s, where anti-aircraft defence, they worked out how to deal with this new robotic threat. And they were focusing on the coastline because it afforded them more freedom to fire over the water. Of course, firing over land, you've got the problem of shrapnel. We'll come to that in a minute. But by the end of August 1944, they were shooting down 74% of all V1s entering the diver belt which is no mean feat. And I need to tell you this, James, at a time when AA Command was more than half operated or manned by women. Not bad. Not bad at all. And you think about the impact that that would have had in terms of reducing civilian casualties on the ground. Yes. Because as those vengeance weapons came flying over at, well, the equivalent today of millions of pounds a time in Nazi investment, hoping, of course, that it'll make astronomical damage to our war effort as the invasion goes on. Well, it's these women in the anti-aircraft guns operating them remotely that are taking these things down. That is incredible. It's incredible. And by the autumn, 82% of all V1s coming into range were being hit down. So August, you have nearly 75% and then 82%. This is a staggering feat. And one, of course, that's not really being written up about. They weren't even heroes at the time. And you know why not? Because we've launched the D-Day landings. Our men are dying. Men are heroes. In this war, men are the heroes. Women are the backup. They're the handmaidens to war. But as a result, I think their story has been relatively invisible in a way that, say, it wouldn't be today. It would be a very different saga. But if you've got 
men dying, it's called the helix effect, where although war has generally propelled women forward in terms of professionally, socially, a stage forward out of their sort of confines, domestic confines, they are always trapped behind the hero men. So yeah, women take a step forward in World War II, but who come out the heroes? The men. And it remains, therefore, a very male narrative. And that was the same at the end of the First World War II, it ought to be said. And of course, men are on the front line more readily here. And D-Day is just a massive invasion. One that actually, if you look through the history there of that period, really overshadows so many of the stories, including what's going on in Italy, the men known as the D-Day Dodgers. So this is something that's a blanket effect across so many heroic stories at that time. And interestingly, Martha, Lady Martha Bruce, is operating these radar. And by now she's been promoted. She's subaltern and really quite significant. And her family haven't kept any of her letters from the last part of 1944 because her brother was shot down in Normandy. He survives. He very nearly has to get his leg removed. I mean, it's appalling. He's in hospital for two years. But that trauma, you know, actually, who cares? You're not going to keep the daughter's letters. Suddenly all that ceases to be relevant. So you can see how one narrative very much trumps another. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. What are Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs, and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? 
a lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So let's go through to the other roles that were played by women in the ATS and in the first aid nursing yeomanry. I know that my grandmother was in Italy with the ATS and that's where she met my grandfather. At least that's what I've been told the story is. Were the women of the ATS sent abroad? Yes, uh, this, this is, I find this really interesting and I'm fascinated that you're grandmother was sent overseas. That meant either she had rather liberal, cool parents or she was over a certain age because there was the intention to back up your, by now, by the autumn of 1944, two million allied men on the continent of Europe. Now that takes some organising. <laughs> Let's not pretend otherwise. You need to be fed. You need your bureaucracy done. You need your paperwork done. You need your clothes. I mean, you name it, you need it done. Clerical work, particularly, there was a big emphasis on clerical work. There was a shout out for good ATS recruits to volunteer to go overseas in the summer of 1944. The take-up rate was dismal. And the reason why was it required a letter of permission from, and wait for it, James, either your mother and father or your husband. <laughs> so they didn't have nearly enough recruits. I think they had something like four to 5,000. One of my ATS girls, in fact, the only extant that I could find, the only extant black ATS girl currently staying with her daughter in Barbados, born in Jamaica. She was also radar, operated radar. She's 104, Ina. She was often quite young. She lost her parents quite young. So she'd come over here for this big adventure. She was initially given the role of clerk. She said, I ain't doing no job of clerk. I've come all the way over to Britain just to be a clerk. So she's promoted to a gun site, passed all the tests. It's quite rigorous tests. And then, of course, hops across to Belgium. She's wanting to experience as much as she can. A lot of girls weren't able to. A lot of the women I spoke to, no, my mother wouldn't let me. She wouldn't give me permission. Now, this has become a crisis point. So by February 1945, we are directing women overseas. Unless you're 19 or under, if you're told you have to go overseas and you're in the ATS, you go. So there's been a change of heart. It's passed through Parliament. Again, a massive outcry. It's the last thing people are expecting, that their precious daughters are going to be sent overseas just as the war's winding down. You know, we roll into Luxembourg, into Belgium. We have de Gaulle in Paris. And suddenly, hey, your little flower, your domestic flower, we need her over in Germany looking after the boys. And you know what the big worry was? And throughout the war, this was very interesting to me. The biggest concern, domestic concern, about recruiting women into the armed forces, particularly the ATS, wasn't enemy fire. It was allied men. It was the idea of your daughter being deflowered, the fear of national levels of promiscuity, of course, venereal disease <laughs> rocketed, skyrocketed. Let's blame the Americans. They come over, of course, in 1943 and the complexion of war changes very much. And this idea that your daughter will be heavily outnumbered, which they were heavily outnumbered on the continent. So your grandma, I'm not surprised she picked up a man. There were plenty of men to pick up. And Anne, funnily enough, who was made a junior commander and she too, like your grandma, grandmother was a clerk over in Britain. And in fact, one of her early roles 
was a clerk and a trainer, and she was given the job of policing the behaviour of trainee ATS recruits. I said, what do you mean? She said, can you believe it? She was a vicar's daughter. She was clearly selected for being, you know, certainly self-possessed. And as she said herself, a well-bred vicar's daughter. So she was given the job of policing these girls. And that meant going around the pubs at night and splitting up petting couples and putting the girls on a charge if they were seen petting men. This was in Britain, in Wrexham, it ought to be pointed out. But obviously Anne established something of a reputation of being able to look after herself. Ideal recruit for overseas work. She grew up in Burma. It was an imperial family and her domestic story is an imperial one. So her parents weren't afraid of their daughter going overseas. So she was given this early on this parental permission and she selected to go across with a ship, a requisitioned cruise liner with a bunch of Lovett scouts. And before she goes, there's an interview in which she said they absolutely drilled you on how you would manage male expectation. She said this was a big part of the interview. Could you handle yourself? And what's fascinating is I've not come across a single male soldier who ever was interviewed about whether he'd, how he'd handle himself around a female recruit. There was a parliamentary committee, the Markham Committee, set up in 1942 to look into rumours derogatory to the service. Again, basically into the behaviour, sexual behaviour of service women was one of their big raison d'etre. No equivalent for the men. And when you talk to all the women, all of them recall and Martha puts it in one of her letters, dirty old men. When a woman was in uniform, men decided it was sort of licensed for a different sort of behaviour, James. And Anne said she remembers literally walking up the gangplank onto her ship to go. She doesn't even know she's going to Italy. They're not told anything, obviously. And there was a lad, a man in uniform, and he said, those ones only sleep with the officers. You know, absolutely. And they were dubbed. The Auxiliary Territorial Service was dubbed. The Auxiliary Tart Service, that's what it was known as, I'm sorry. I've been asked to forget that by Daphne. Some of the women still today feel so proud of their service and were so offended by these rumours, which obviously cranked up in the press. And there was even a count of the number of pregnant women, illegitimately pregnant women, in the service versus the number outside the services to prove to the general public that actually service girls quote unquote, behave themselves. Really, the whole narrative around this, I want to be able to tell you, you know, there they were fighting the Germans. Whatever. No, the concern, our preoccupation at sort of public and political level was about how girls would avoid advancing men. It was how men avoided advancing bullets and girls avoided advancing men. It was extraordinary, the preoccupation of this. But Anne says when she gets out to Italy, it was a big deal. They were heavily outnumbered. These guys, as you will know, coming from the Middle East, they fought a very long war and they are sexed up. They haven't seen a woman for a very long time. They miss not just sex, but also female company. And she said you'd climb into an army vehicle at the end of a night or a dance or something and they would engineer it so you had to sit on one of their knees. And she said, you know, they'd feel you up and you'd go, please don't do that. You know, you'd have to reason with them not to be feeling them. You know, so you needed to be self-possessed. And likewise, you asked about a fanny. I had Fanny Jean lovely gosh she's a character and she because of the class aspect as I said the fannies were allowed overseas sooner again she had to ask her mother's permission she was only 18 she was team leader a code cipher team leader unpicking these agents you know the SOE agents who are communicating back to base so 2,000 fannies were drafted in to basically be the support network for the SOE agents on the ground who are desperately dialing back what they need, personnel, enemy movements, you name it. It's all encoded. Jean is particularly good at unpicking decipherables. That's what they were called. The ones that had got garbled in translation. And often, because especially if it's a poem code or something, they have to be over 200 
letters long and that meant mistakes crept in. And remember, if a direction finder's seeking you down and any minute now you could get caught by the enemy, it's all done in a hurry. She was very good at spotting mistakes and being able to tease out what was being said. And she was a team leader, 18 years old. But the one thing she wasn't prepared to was the attention of men. And she gave me all her cachet of letters to her sister. And she just is exasperated. She's going, you know, I hate it when I go out with men and they just want to kiss me and I don't know how to manage it. And I, you know, and then there's one guy who's 20 years older than her. He's clearly been traumatized. He was in El Alamein. We discover in one letter, he's lost all his teeth. He's been deafened. And, you know, she can't shake him off. So this was a, a real baptism of fire for girls who were terribly protected back in Britain, hadn't really left home. You know, they'd scarcely got out of their school uniform and suddenly they are sent to defend for themselves. And Joan, too, she's in occupied Germany. You know, they are kept in this barbed wire compound, looked after by a dragon who never lets them out. But also, you know, she's in the legal aid section and she just says, oh, this sickening solicitor. He's a male officer, Scotsman, actually, in the army, in the legal department. And he leaves her roses. He stalks her. He even contacts her parents. I mean, it's extraordinary. Talk about me, too, in the 1940s. I was blown away by it, James. And of course, the girls never complained. Complaining was unpatriotic and you just didn't. They sort of felt guilty almost, I think. You know, they're looking to please, not knowing how to manage, how to navigate themselves. It was a very different time. Sounds like the women had to fight on many fronts during this war. Yeah. And I mean, your book helps us bring these stories to light and the sacrifice they made during the war. But I've got to ask, when they came home, given these rumours and the soldiers' rumours about them, did they face any stigma returning back into their communities and their families? It's interesting you ask that. The ATS were called the officers' ground sheets. You know, they did suffer from a bit of a drubbing in the press. And a lot of that was not just sexism, but also snobbery. As mentioned, they relied on conscription and they got a lower socioeconomic type of recruit, for want of a better expression. But at the same time... Women in uniform had become the bricks and mortar of public life by the end of the war. What's fascinating about Anne, who went overseas to Italy like your grandmother, she was just a teenager at the beginning of the war, just a, a sort of 14, 15 year old. But her mother was W1, the first female recruit into the ATS in 1938. And then by the end of the war, 1943, they're desperate for numbers and they get this wonderful press picture of Anne with her mother. I've put it in the book. So there's her mother and Anne signing up at aged 18, finally allowed to join up. And it's just interesting to me that in 1938, it's like a hobby for posh women, you know, see if we can drum up a bit of interest and, you know, going into the military. And now by 1943, it's a mass conscripted organisation. It's a bit like opting to, you know, have an exotic vaccine to go abroad for your Bahamas holiday to having a coronavirus vaccine everyone must for this. You know, it's sort of almost equivalent kind of the extent to which the complexion, the social complexion of Britain had changed. And women in uniform had gone from being seen as eccentric or easy or unusual to be seen part of national life. And actually, Joyce, who was a fanny, so sort of cut above and they had a much nicer uniform, it must be said, always says, oh, well, I was treated so well because I was in uniform, you know. I could take my dog to the pub and people would just look after him because I was in uniform. And actually, because she was a fanny, she was allowed her pets. And Joyce, who worked in one of the SOE training camps, receiving these live transmissions from the agents in France, she took her pony, Pinto. She said, oh, well, he was under the flight path. It wasn't on. I couldn't possibly leave him at home. So I took him with me to Tame Park in Oxfordshire. And um, yes, he was looked after awfully well. And she remembers working with these SOE agents who were training. They were all given fake names, so she doesn't know who they were to this day. But this Norwegian aristocrat, I mean, we know about the Norwegians doing the SOE runs. They had a pretty remarkable track record. She said, I'll never forget. 
He said, in order to be memorable in life, you have to have something that stands out. And you, Joyce, have a horse. And there's these wonderful pictures of her and this Norwegian agent on this piebald horse. And you do think, well, whatever happened to him, he certainly had a good time with our Joyce and her horse. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Joyce with her cherry lipstick and they had sort of wonderful entertainment evenings. They'd really lived in the moment. That's the other thing. And in fact, Anne, I mustn't do a disservice to wonderful Anne, who died, in fact, in July this year, because she was, you're asking me too many questions about sex. You know, it was because I picked it up in their letters, their teenage letters home, and I wanted to kind of find out what was going on. But to her now, the way she commemorates it, you know, the soldiers were heroes, you know, and also compared to today's promiscuous society, how could I even think it was a problem? You know, so it's important that I don't misrepresent them, but it was constant mood music. Containing male expectation was expected by women were expected to do that. That was one of their jobs, to manage male expectation. And bear in mind, as Anne told me, there was no contraception. And paragraph 11, if you got pregnant, you were out on your ear. Grace, who worked on the height finder, and she got really close to her team. There were three girls working on the height finder. That's for the, you know, on the gun site with the enemy raiders coming in. Clark, Bot and Crow, they were known as. Suddenly they lose their bot because she gets pregnant. Off she goes. And Grace is so sweet to this day. She says, I still can't work out where it happened because we had separate quarters. I still can't work out how that happened. She says like this. She's so sweet. She actually married her husband. He was a truck driver on one of the gun sites. And I said, well, how did that happen? How did you fall in love? Oh, just touching knees. That's all that was involved. So I love Grace. She's so sweet. I love her. And there's so many of these amazing personal stories in your book, Tessa, and I don't want to give them all away. You can give some away, I don't mind. We've given so many amazing ones away and there's so many more to read about. So can you tell us when is the book out and where can people buy the book? The book's out, I've been absolutely assured, James, on the 4th of November in the run-up to Armistice because we ought to say the reason for the book, the inspiration behind it was the 80th anniversary of conscription for women which was introduced in December 1941. And the debate was led by Churchill, who did a U-turn because he didn't think that we should have women directed into the armed forces. He thought it would be bad for male morale. That's his reasoning. But he did a U-turn and there was a change. And what's interesting is of the 17 women in my book, only one had to be conscripted. She was gutted. I had a really good job in Glasgow. She said, I love my job. And my papers came. I thought, damn it, that's me. And she was called up and her mother was horrified. Her dad was really proud. And she went off and she just, the range of jobs was extraordinary. Once the Army Act kicks in, there's numerous trades that women can work in from April 1941. Suddenly you see them going from being just drivers and cooks to working in signals and in intelligence for the Royal Artillery overseas. Joan, 180 letters from Germany, working in occupied Germany. Can you imagine? Incidentally, on the non-armed thing, she picks up on this in her letters home. She's working in 1945 Germany, arrives in June. She's fascinating on that. I found I came away asking so many different questions about Germany post-war and why we won't discuss it. You know, the smell of rotten flesh, the profound level of depression, the country just absolutely mullered, blitzed. The British Allied Army turfing out, obviously, Germans, 800,000 of us, there was very massive shortage of housing. But of course, we needed yet more housing. So you can imagine how unpopular they were. But she wasn't allowed out of the compound initially, unless she was beside a member of the male army, because he could be armed. Later on, when the rules were relaxed, ATS girls were allowed out in pairs. But unlike men, they couldn't be armed because they weren't allowed to carry a gun. And there were quite a lot of attacks. Interestingly, Grace's husband, who also worked for the British 
Allied occupation in Germany, he got knifed. He got through the war scot-free, he got knifed. You know, because there was a huge tension. Can you imagine how displaced that country was after the war and the horror of it all? So I found Joan's letters really moving, actually, and it made me think very differently about the war and just how extraordinary the recovery process was in Europe. She was also in liberated Belgium. And again, it made me look at the war differently, how Germany had such a different war from us. You know, if you're an occupied country, you're very compromised morally. Did you work with the occupiers? Didn't you? Could you trust your neighbours? Couldn't you? For Britain, it was really this great kind of patriotic moment when the majority of people did pull together. And it helped me understand that kind of idea of British exceptionalism to an extent. You know, we weren't occupied. We weren't the enemy. We had, a, in an inverted commas, a good war in that respect. And I think that's why we talk about it so much and remember it, because it was the high noon, really, of the British historic story in the 20th century. Well, Tessa, thank you so much because your new book is a great way for us to remember the war and the service of these women on this important 80th anniversary. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm now thinking, gosh, I talked way too much, but it's just so difficult to compress all what I've learned and it's just difficult to compress it into a few minutes. Well, we're 100% going to get you back on the podcast. You're always welcome on Warfare and I can't wait for the next project. Thank you, James. Thank you so much. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're looking for more fascinating warfare content, then go and subscribe to our Warfare Wednesdays newsletter. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out more. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.